Welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be defining and examining public opinion. So this is a government podcast. So let's get started. So when we talk about public opinion, we're looking at, you know, attitudes people have about policy issues, events, elected officials, and politics in general. And we have to distinguish between values and beliefs on one hand and attitudes and opinions on the other. So values or beliefs, these are, you know, our basic orientation to politics, guiding principles, and not just limited to political arena, but we think about, you know, deep-rooted morals, ethics, aspirations, ideals that shape our perceptions of society, government, and the economy. So a few examples of like political values held by most Americans are, you know, liberty or freedom, democracy, and equality of opportunity. And when we talk about public opinion, we also got to look at political ideology. So political ideology, this is a set of beliefs and values that as a whole help form a general philosophy about government. So, for example, a lot of Americans believe, you know, government solutions to problems are just inherently inferior to solutions offered by, like, the private private sector and free market. So, that type of philosophy about government can predispose people to form negative views of specific government programs, you know, even before you know much about the policy. Now, an attitude or opinion, this is a view that a particular issue, person, or event, like about these things. So an individual may have an attitude toward American policy in the Middle East or an opinion about economic inequality in America. And the attitude may have emerged from a broad belief about military intervention or about the role of government in the economy. But the opinion itself is very specific. So some attitudes may be short-lived, may change on circumstances or new information. Others just may change over a few years and others may not change at all over a lifetime. So to measure public opinion on an issue, we have to study the individual opinions of thousands or even millions of people lumped together. And so this is a way to gauge what Americans think about politics and policy. So political attitudes, they're increasingly influenced by partisanship. So like Republicans versus Democrats and ideology with things like conservatives versus liberals. And so, for example, you know, after taking office in January 2017, President Trump signed a very controversial executive order immediately halting the U.S. refugee program and banning immigration to the United States from a half a dozen predominantly Muslim countries, including Syria. And in 2018, the Supreme Court upheld the travel ban as constitutional despite having legal challenges. And opinion polls show that 63% of Republicans say refugees from the Middle East are a threat. Only 30% of Democrats were saying the same. And... Americans, we do differ on a lot of issues. A lot of the differences are associated with partisanship, economic status, or even social and demographic characteristics like race, ethnicity, gender, income, education, age, 
religion and even region. So research has shown that individuals uh, usually monitor political views by responding to familiar political figures or issues in a habitual and just unthinking manner. So, but when we encounter a new political act or event or issue, we tend to form a new evaluation and anxiety triggered by a change in the political environment, such as a foreign enemy or an opposing party's candidate can trigger increased interest, attention and information seeking, which can prompt a change in opinion. So despite their differences, most Americans do share a common set of values, including a belief in the principles, if not always the actual practice of liberty, equality, and democracy. Now, the United States was founded on the principle of individual liberty or freedom. And Americans have always voiced strong support for the idea of liberty and typically support the notion that government interference with individuals' lives and property should be kept to a minimum. And liberty is, after all, tied very much so inextricably even to the birth of our nation. And we have Puritans fleeing to America to escape persecution in England for their religious beliefs. It remains, you know, just as important in contemporary politics as it was during the founding era when the colonists fought for their freedom from Britain during the Revolutionary War. And Americans have stronger views about the importance of liberty and freedom of expression than do citizens in other democratic countries. So similarly, equality of opportunity has always been an important theme in American society. Most Americans believe that all individuals should be allowed to seek personal and economic success. And most people generally believe that such success should be the result of individual effort and ability rather than family connections or other forms of special privilege. Quality public education is one of the most important mechanisms for obtaining equality of opportunity because it allows individuals, regardless of personal or family wealth, a chance to get ahead. So education is one of the most important pathways to a high paying job, but rising tuition limits access to a college degree for a lot of people. And we've seen student loan debt skyrocket in the U.S. as well. Um, 17 states today do offer free college for eligible students. And so it helps reflect that principle of equality of opportunity. And most Americans do believe in democracy and rule of law. They believe every citizen should have the opportunity to take part in the nation's governmental and policymaking processes and have some say in determining how they're governed, including the right to vote. So nearly 90% of Americans believe a strong democracy in America depends on open and fair elections, right? Uh, But back in 2016, you know, CIA and FBI confirmed that the Russians had hacked the Democratic National Committee and the campaign of Hillary Clinton, releasing large amounts of data in an effort to try and undermine her campaign. And the hacks produced a stream of leaked emails, resulting in negative views about Clinton's campaign in the run-up to the election. And the NSA, National Security Administration, they did find Russian intelligence agents try to hack the U.S. company that maintains and verifies voter rolls in multiple states. 
And in response to these events, most Americans believe Russia interfered with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But, uh, yeah, 88% of U.S. adults had heard about allegations that Russia was involved in hacking the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign. Roughly three in four Americans believe Russia was definitely or probably behind the cyber attacks, according to a uh, Pew Research st- survey. And today, about 73% of Americans do see Russia as a serious problem or an adversary more than any other foreign nation. So, obviously, the political values that Americans espouse have not always been put into practice. For 200 years, Americans did embrace principles of equality of opportunity and individual liberty while denying them a practice to, you know, generations of African-Americans. But ultimately, proponents of slavery and later of segregation were defeated in public opinion because their practices differed so sharply from the fundamental principles that were accepted by most Americans. So we form our individual preferences and interpretation of values through interaction with family members, friends, teachers, coaches, mentors, and others in social groups and networks in a process we call political socialization. So political ideology, looking at this, Americans do share a lot of the same fundamental political values, but application of the values to specific policies does vary. So the set I mentioned of all the underlying ideas and beliefs that we come to understand and interpret politics, this is called a political ideology. So the definition of the two most common political ideologies, which are liberalism and conservatism, they have changed over time. So Contemporary liberalism and conservatism have been seen as differences and emphasis with regard to the fundamental American political values of liberty and equality. So for liberals, equality is the most important of the core values. Liberals encourage government action in areas like the economy, progressive taxation, health care, workers' rights, financial aid for college, environmental protection, business practices to enhance race, class, and gender equality of opportunity. Whereas on the other hand, for conservatives, liberty is the core value. So conservatives oppose a lot of efforts of the government, however, well-intentioned to interfere in private life and free markets, including government regulations. Now, in classic political theory, a liberal was someone who favored individual initiative and was suspicious of motives of government and its ability to manage economic and social affairs, which we define that today as a libertarian. And proponents of a larger and more active government called themselves progressives. In the early 20th century, a lot of liberals and progressives came together around the doctrine of social liberalism, which held government action might be needed to preserve individual liberty. And today's liberals are social liberals rather than classical liberals. So in contemporary politics, being a liberal has come to mean supporting government policies to create a fair economic system and opportunity for upper mobility 
raising taxes on wealthy, expanding federal social services and health care, government spending on roads, infrastructure, science, technology, alternative energy, more vigorous efforts on behalf of the poor and minorities, more concern with protecting the environment. So liberals generally support reproductive rights for women as well, rights for the LGBTQ community. They're concerned with protecting the rights of people accused of crimes, refugees, and immigrants. In international affairs, liberals often support foreign aid to poor nations, arms control, and international organizations that promote peace like the UN or the European Union. And many many liberals are opposed to military wars, you know, but uh, some liberals tolerate military interventions in other countries under President Obama. So liberals are also divided on issues like international trade. Some want to support local businesses and locally sourced products. And so by contrast, conservatives, they believe strongly that a large government poses a threat to freedom of individual citizens and to free markets and democracy. And today's conservatives tend to support the views of classical liberalism. So conservatives today generally oppose expanding government activity, saying solutions to a lot of the social and economic problems can and should be developed in the private sector, local communities, or even by religious organizations. And conservatives support cutting taxes and reducing government spending. They generally oppose efforts to impose government regulation on business, Maintaining that regulation frequently leads to economic inefficiency. It's costly, can lower the entire nation's standard of living by making U.S. manufactured products more expensive and less competitive. So in terms of social policy, many conservatives support traditional family values. They generally oppose abortion and same-sex marriage. They often oppose environmental protections that interfere with private business. And... A lot of conservatives prefer stricter criminal justice laws. They oppose drug legalization. They want to reduce immigration to the U.S. And conservatives today are very deeply divided on issues like immigration, international trade, and the fairness of the U.S. economic system in general. So libertarians, on the other hand, so... For example, libertarians argue that government interferes with freedom of expression, free markets, and society, and should therefore just be limited to as few spheres of activity as possible. And so one big notable exception for libertarians is public education, right? While... Libertarians believe in less government intervention in economic and social realms. Socialists, they argue that more government is necessary to promote justice and reduce economic and social inequality. So like the social democratic parties in Europe, Bernie Sanders uh, supports free markets and private enterprise, but wants government to ensure more quality of opportunity for citizens like free public college, single-payer health care, increased taxation on the very affluent or wealthy. So socialists are more to the ideological left than mainstream Democratic Party, 
although they share a lot of the same policy issues. So, ideologies today. Many Americans do subscribe to libertarianism, socialism, or other ideologies in part, but most describe themselves as either liberals, conservatives, or moderates. So, within each ideological group, individual beliefs often vary. Many conservatives support at least some government social programs. Um... So, for example, Republican President George W. Bush, he called himself a compassionate conservative to indicate that he favored programs to assist the poor and needy. And in contrast, a lot of staunch conservatives hold much more critical views of the government's role in the economy and society. And a lot of them joined the Tea Party movement in 2009 to protest President Obama's efforts to expand the role of the federal government, especially in healthcare. So how we form these political opinions. So people's attitudes about political issues and elected officials tend to be shaped by their underlying political beliefs and values. So for example, an individual who has negative feelings about government regulation of the economy would probably be predisposed to oppose the development of new healthcare programs. So the processes that we, all these underlying political beliefs and values are formed are called political socialization. So we have different agents of socialization that foster and create differences in political opinions. And these things include the family, uh, social networks with friends, uh, education, membership at social groups, religion, party affiliation, self-interest, political environment, um, other agents like public education promote similarities. So in addition to factors that are important for everyone, experiences and influences that are unique to each individual do play a role in shaping political orientation. So... For example, an early encounter with an important mentor can have a lasting impact on individuals on an individual's views. A major political event, for example, like uh, the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, these can leave an indelible mark on a person's political consciousness. Some deep-seated personality characteristic, like paranoia, or openness to new experiences may strongly influence the formation of political beliefs. And there was a recent experiment that found people who tend to be more fearful appear to support policies that protect the existing social structure from both external and internal threats. So most people acquire their initial orientation to politics from their families. You know, differences in family background tend to produce divergent political perspectives. Uh, Relatively few parents spend significant time directly teaching their children about politics. Political conversations occur in a lot of households. Children tend to absorb the political views of their parents or other caregivers, often without realizing it. And studies find that party preferences are initially acquired at home, even in households that don't explicitly talk about politics. 
But nevertheless, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, they are an important source of political orientation for nearly everyone. So, for example, like when members of a social network express a particular political opinion or belief, others notice and conform, especially if their conformity is likely to be highly visible, right? Online social networks like Facebook and Twitter can increase the role of peers in shaping public opinion. So after family, formal education can be an important source of differences in political perspectives. Governments use public education to try to teach all children a common set of civic values. It's mainly in school that Americans acquire basic beliefs in liberty, equality, and democracy. And research finds that formal education is a strong predictor of tolerance for racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. And at the same time, differences in formal education are strongly associated with differences in political opinions. Uh, For example, those who attend college are often exposed to modes of thought that will distinguish them from their friends and neighbors who do not pursue college diplomas. Education is one of the most important factors in predicting who engages in behavior that increases political knowledge, like regularly following the news, voting, participating in politics, as well as the higher earnings over a lifetime. So, social groups. Race plays an important role in shaping political attitudes and opinions among both minorities and whites. So, experiences of blacks, whites, and Asian Americans, for example, can differ significantly. So political scientists refer to a phenomenon called linked fate. For example, African-Americans see their fate as linked to other members of the black community. And the linked fate acts as sort of a filter that black Americans evaluate information to determine their own opinions and policy preferences. So events and circumstances can cause opinions to change. In 2009, 80% of African Americans said blacks and other minorities do not get equal treatment under the law. Sorry about that. Had a phone call come in and it just completely threw off the whole podcast. Sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, so events and circumstances, these can cause opinions to change. In 2009, 80% of African Americans said blacks and other minorities do not get equal treatment under the law. And the number of whites giving that response was just 40%. But in the past few years, widely publicized incidents of excessive use of police force against African Americans have begun to cause a shift in public opinion on the issue. So the activist movement Black Lives Matter it gained momentum in 2014 after the killing of Michael Brown an unarmed 18-year-old African-American by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Protests erupted across the country when the officer was not indicted. And a month after that verdict, a white police officer in New York was not indicted despite video evidence that he had used a chokehold and other means of force on an African-American man heard repeatedly saying that he could not breathe. So... There's still a racial divide on 
this issue. By 2014, 90% of African Americans agreed blacks and whites are not treated equally by police. 54% of whites felt the same way. But, yeah, opinions on it have changed significantly over the past few years. Uh, Half of all Americans now agree that racism is a big problem, compared to only 26% back in 2009. Ethnicity also affects policy attitudes. Latinos are the fastest growing minority population in the United States. Most Latinos are considered white in race. Their shared Hispanic ethnicity contributes to a group consciousness that shapes opinions. So unsurprisingly, immigration is one of the most important policy issues among Latinos, with significant majorities of Latinos concerned about restrictive immigration policies and the threat of deportation. And most immigrants do legally reside in the U.S. Uh, Differences in opinion are found between Latinos and white non-Hispanics over immigration. Most Americans, about 72%, do support a path to legal status for undocumented immigrants. But there are differences in opinion based on ethnicity. Uh, 69% of white non-Hispanics said there should be a path to citizenship for immigrants compared to 86% of Latinos that share this opinion. So with respect to ideology, Latinos are typically are supportive of government laws to improve the lives of citizens and to reduce prevailing inequality, which includes favoring public funding for education, health, and welfare. And Latinos generally see an active government as a good thing and favor liberal economic policies to create jobs and improve the economy. Uh, while Latinos tend to be fairly religious, Latino decision surveys find they do not allow their religious beliefs to dictate their political decisions. So they're less likely to vote for conservative politicians because of social issues. So gender. Men and women have some pretty important differences of opinion as well. Uh, Reflecting differences in social roles and occupational patterns, women tend to oppose military intervention more than men do. They're more likely than men to favor gun control, more supportive of government social programs. And perhaps because of these differences on issues, women are more likely than men to vote for Democratic candidates. And so the tendency of men's and women's opinions to differ is known as the generation gap. Or the gender gap, sorry, gender gap. Uh, So following the 2016 election, men are now much more likely than women to say they have quite a lot of confidence in the future of the United States than women a pretty significant change back from uh, 2015 when there were uh, similar levels of confidence. Religion can be an important predictor of opinion on a wide range of issues. Religious individuals are usually defined in surveys regarding religious affiliation, frequency of church attendance, the belief that religion and prayer are important in their lives. So uh, sharp differences in opinion are also found in terms of attitudes about same-sex marriage. You know, only 35% of evangelical Protestants support same-sex marriage compared to 76% of the non-religious. So religion helps us understand opinions on teaching evolution in public schools, environmental policy, immigration, partisanship, ideology, and other issues.
Political party membership is one of the most important factors affecting political attitudes. We could think of partisanship as red or blue tinted glasses that color opinion on a vast area of issues. Uh, Self-identified partisans uh, do tend to rely on party leaders and the media for cues on the appropriate positions to take on major political issues. And in recent years, party polarization has become a major defining feature of Congress and many state legislatures. Now, the leadership of the Republican Party has become increasingly conservative, whereas the Democratic Party has become more liberal, and it's a shift that's reflected in public opinion. So according to some recent studies, differences between Democratic and Republican partisans on a variety of political and policy decisions, they're greater today than during any other period that we have like data available from that. So despite the fact that the rift between like the red or Republican leaning and the blue or Democrat leaning states seems deeper than ever, there's a political scientist named Morris Fiorina and colleagues that argue most Americans hold moderate opinions. Uh, political elites and members of Congress may be highly polarized. There's general agreement among most Americans, even on those issues that's thought to be most divisive. So evidence of partisan polarization in public opinion is mixed. You know, there's some deep divisions while others see evidence of, you know, that popular consensus. And another way that membership in groups can affect political beliefs is through what might be called rational political interests. So on a lot of economic issues, for example, interests of the rich and the poor differ significantly. And so these differences in interests will produce differences in political outlook. And the framers of the Constitution thought that the inherent gulf between the rich and the poor would always be the most important source of conflict in political life. But today, significant numbers of Republicans and Democrats uh, bemoan the chasm between the 99% of income earners and the top 1%. But while there might be agreement on the problem, there's huge disagreements about the solution. Now, Republicans favor cutting taxes on business and wealthier Americans. President Trump, for example, favors creating jobs by promoting an isolationist foreign policy with reduced reliance on free trade, tariffs on steel and aluminum, limiting foreign immigration. Liberals tend to favor government policies to promote equality, like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, free college education, raising taxes on the wealthy, also incentives to encourage employee-owned companies and strengthen employee unions. Wealthier individuals tend to favor the Republican solutions, including the tax cuts, while the less wealthy tend to favor liberal policies, including government benefits. So differences in interest also exist among the generations. So senior citizens and younger Americans have very different views on diverse issues like the war on drugs, Social Security and criminal justice. The young, for example, are much more accepting of legalization of like marijuana than older citizens are. 
young are also more likely to favor same-sex marriage than older citizens. They're more concerned about the high cost of a college education, climate change, criminal justice issues, privacy and security online, like government surveillance. Older citizens are more concerned with protecting Social Security benefits than the young are. Some of these differences are rooted where individuals learn about politics and media consumption. The young are significantly more likely to get their news online and are less likely to watch television news. But group membership can never fully explain a given individual's political views. You know, an individual's unique personality and life experiences may produce political views very different from those of the group to which they might kind of nominally belong. Some African Americans are conservative Republicans. Some wealthy business people are very liberal. You know, so group membership is conducive to uh, particular outlooks, but it's not determinative. So a final set of factors that shape political attitudes and values are the conditions under which individuals become involved in political life. So Political beliefs are influenced by family background and group membership. The content and character of these views is to a large extent determined by political circumstances. So for example, the baby boom generation, they came of age in the 1960s. They were exposed to the Vietnam War, resulting widespread anti-war protests on college campuses and in urban areas throughout the country. So as a result, this generation has generally opposed foreign wars. Similarly, the views held by members of a particular group can shift dramatically over time as political circumstances change, right? Uh, For example, white Southerners were staunch members of the Democratic Party from the Civil War through the 1960s. As Democrats, they became key supporters of liberal New Deal and post-New Deal social programs that expanded the size and power of the national government and provided social welfare programs. The 1960s marked the beginning of the South's move from the Democratic to the Republican camp, mainly because of white Southerners' opposition to racial integration of schools and public facilities. So this major shift we see in partisanship because today Southern whites are a solid base of support for efforts to scale back social programs, reduce size and power in national government, um, And a majority of the Southern whites in the 60s, since then, they've shifted to the Republican Party and away from Democrats. So that major shift in the South was the result of changes in the political environment and the policies promoted by the parties. And another example of public opinion change can be seen in the evolving political environment in the West. So... Back in the 1970s, the Republican governor of California, Ronald Reagan, he went on in the 1980s to become one of the most admired Republican presidents. He ushered in major tax reform and scaled back size and reach of the federal government. But since the 1990s, California, which was once a big Republican stronghold, has become solidly Democratic. So some argue shift began with a series of Republican-endorsed ballot measures targeting racial and ethnic minorities, including immigration, affirmative action, bilingual education, and that triggered a backlash among especially Latinos that previously participated in politics in very low numbers. So kind of in some public opinion orientations, they are shaped by the political circumstances that individuals and groups find themselves. And those outlooks can change as circumstances change.
So one of the most important studies of how public opinion is formed is by a political scientist named John Zeller. And he argues that individuals learn about politics by converting information from the news, elected officials, and other sources into opinions. So we have the receive stage where, you know, we're receiving information from different sources and the accept stage. We assess the information through lens of our own political views. We accept only the messages that are in line with previously held beliefs, meaning that some of the political information is rejected. And then finally, in the sample stage, we select some of the accepted information off of the information that's most recent and form an opinion about it. So the decision to accept or reject information is based on political knowledge. When asked about their opinion on a topic, the individual selects the most relevant or most recently acquired and accepted information from the kind of bucket of information. And citizens with more political knowledge can differentiate between information that fits or doesn't fit with their beliefs and then currently accept or reject it. So another way of understanding how individuals form political opinions is online processing model. So according to that model, we keep a running tally of information, use that tally to form an opinion on a policy issue or to decide which candidate to vote for. By the time an individual actually votes or voices an opinion on a specific issue, they may have forgotten some of the older information included in the decision-making process. So, you know, public opinion, it's very often a reflection of where whatever recent campaign message or media story we have stored in a short-term memory. And so this effect is known as priming. So what best explains whether citizens are generally consistent in their political views or inconsistent and open to influence of others? So in general, knowledgeable citizens are better able to evaluate new information and determine if it's relevant to and consistent with beliefs and opinions. They're more likely to be partisans and have an ideology. So as a result, better informed individuals can recognize their political interests and act consistently to further those interests. Uh... It's also been found that political knowledge is not evenly distributed throughout the population. Those with higher education, income, and occupational status and are members of social or political organizations, they're more likely to know about and be active in politics. So individuals with more income and education also have a disproportionate share of knowledge and influence and are able to get what they want from government. So... Because being informed politically requires a substantial investment of time and energy, most Americans just want to acquire political information and make political decisions on the cheap by making use of shortcuts for political evaluation and decision-making rather than engaging in a lengthy process of information gathering, right? So um, researchers have found individuals rely on cues from trusted party elites, interest groups, and media to aid and attitude formation. So some inexpensive ways to become informed involve taking cues from trusted friends, social networks, social media, relatives, colleagues, uh, maybe religious leaders, right? It is generally accepted by scholars that people rely on shortcuts informing public opinion on politics and public policy. 
So from this perspective, lower levels of political knowledge about politics or instability of opinions may not be a serious problem. You know, the public's reliance on elite cues has taken new significance in today's era of party polarization. So polarization between the parties means that party endorsements of an issue or candidate have a larger impact on public opinion formation than they used to. So another factor affecting political knowledge is the form in which people consume information. So the transformation of political information in the digital era, it's had a profound effect on the way news is reported and how citizens learn about politics. More than three in four Americans read the news online or seek political information online. There is a debate about whether the shift to digital media creates a more informed public given broader diversity of information sources and a more personalized communication of the news via social media or a public that is less informed because of a tendency to favor skimming and scanning over in-depth reading. But uh, political knowledge is necessary for effective citizenship. Those who lack political information cannot effectively defend their own political interests, rights, and freedoms, and can easily become losers in political struggle, struggles and government policy. So the presence of large numbers of politically igno- ignorant individuals means that power can more easily be manipulated by political elites. The media, foreign governments, and wealthy special interests that seek to shape public opinion. And if knowledge is power, then a lack of knowledge can contribute to growing political and economic inequality. So the marketplace of ideas, when we talk about this, this is the interplay of opinions and views that takes place as competing forces attempt to persuade as many people as possible to accept a particular position on a particular issue. So given this constant exposure to the ideas of their own beliefs, or, sorry, of others, sorry, it's virtually impossible for most individuals to resist some modification of their own beliefs. Here we go. So... Three forces play an important role with shaping opinion in the marketplace. And these are the government, private groups, and news media. So all governments try to influence, manipulate, or manage their citizens' beliefs. So the extent to which public opinion is actually affected by governmental public relations can be limited. Governmental claims are disputed by the media, for by interest groups, and increasingly by the opposing political party. It hasn't stopped modern presidents from focusing a great deal of attention on shaping public opinion to boost support for their policy agendas. Right? So the ideas that become prominent in political life are developed and spread not only by government officials and parties, but also by important economic and political groups searching for issues that will advance their causes. 
So to advance their cause, uh, just for an example, leaders of the Right to Life movement, they sponsor well-publicized uh, Senate hearings at which testimony, photographs, films, and other exhibits were presented to illustrate the movement's claim that abortion amounted to the murder of millions of unborn human beings. Religious leaders have also organized demonstrations, pickets, and disruptions at abortion clinics all throughout the country. And the media are among the most powerful forces operating in the marketplace of ideas. So the mass media are not simply neutral messengers for ideas developed by others. Uh, The media are opinion makers. They have an enormous impact on popular attitudes. At the same time, the ways in which media coverage interprets or frames specific events can have a major impact on popular responses and opinions about these events. So studies generally find that elected officials are influenced by the preferences of the public. The results of a study show that shifts in public opinion on particular issues do, in fact, tend to lead to changes in public policy. And this is especially true when there are wide swings in opinion regarding particularly high-profile issues that are relatively simple, such as legalization of same-sex marriage. Other studies have found similar evidence that government policy generally does track public opinion. Unsurprisingly, states where conservative opinions predominate tend to adopt more conservative laws. States with more liberal public opinion adopt more liberal policies, right? You know, there's reason to question whether prevailing public opinion causes politicians to make policies that reflect the general will or whether government policy, in fact, causes changes in public opinion. And the relationship between government policy and opinion may be dynamic, wherein policy responds to opinion but opinion also shifts based on new government policies. New policy may expose the public to new ideas, causing opinion to change or experience with a successful or unsuccessful policy may give the public new information. Policy might act as a signal of a moral or ethical view. Sometimes public opinion and policy do not align, right? like a discussion of environmental policy in the Paris Agreement. Sometimes public officials act on their own preferences if they believe it will benefit government or society, and lawmakers typically do use their own judgment when making policy choices. So when elected officials pursue policies not aligned with public opinion, it's often because they view particular groups of the electorate as more important than others. Now, in a democracy, it's assumed that elected representatives will implement the policies favored by the majority of the people. And in a general sense, this does happen in the U.S. But when policy issues are more complicated, like taxation or foreign policy, the public is less likely to have or is likely to have less of a voice. So citizens who are more affluent and more educated may have a disproportionate influence over politics and public policy decisions. And it's been shown when comparing the responsiveness of elected officials to low and high income individuals, voters and non-voters, and whites and minorities. And the view that some groups in a society have more influence in politics is not new. 
but it's quite a departure from the traditional pluralist view of all citizens having equal access to the political sphere. Now, it's not feasible to interview more than 300 million Americans residing in the United States on their opinions of who should be the next president or what should be done about important policy issues, like how to improve the economy and create jobs, you know, for because public opinion, public officials, they do make extensive use of public opinion polls to help them decide whether to run for office, what policies to support, how to vote on important legislation, what types of appeals to make in their campaigns. So pollsters, they take a sample of the population. It's a small group selected by researchers to represent the most important characteristics of an entire population. You know, it's... So they use that sample to then make inferences, predictions, educated guesses about the preferences of the population as a whole. So for a political survey to be an accurate representation of the population, it has to meet certain requirements hold, including an appropriate sampling method like randomization, it has to have a sufficient sample size, avoiding selection bias. You know, some are skeptical of sampling, but uh, random sample surveys, which are used extensively in business and marketing as well as politics, it ensures that samples are accurate and reliable predictions of the underlying population. So one way to obtain a representative sample is what's called simple random sample or probability sample. So to take this type of sample, you need a complete list of all the people in the U.S. Individuals would be randomly selected from that list. Imagine everyone's name was entered into a lottery. The names are then drawn blindly from a giant enormous box. If everyone had an equal chance of selection, the result is a random sample. But since we don't have a complete list of all Americans, pollsters use census data, lists, lists of households for in-person or telephone surveys, telephone numbers to create lists, drawing samples from regions and then neighborhoods within regions. So state voter registration files are often used in political surveys designed to predict the outcome of an election or public opinion. If respondents are chosen randomly and everyone has an equal chance of being selected, then their results can be used to predict behavior for the overall population. If randomization is not used and, or some people are excluded from the chance to be selected, then the sample will be biased and cannot be used to generalize to the population accurately. Another method of drawing samples of the national population is a technique called random digit dialing. So a computer random number generator is used to produce a list of 10-digit telephone numbers. 95% of Americans have telephones, whether they be cell phones or landlines, so this technique usually results in a random national sample because almost every citizen has a chance of being selected for the survey. And telephone surveys are fairly accurate, cost-effective, they're flexible in the type of questions that can be asked, but many people refuse to answer political surveys, and response rates are have been falling steadily you know averaging less than 15 percent now a sample has to be large enough to provide an accurate representation of the population now there's almost always sampling error or margin of error this is 
polling error that does arise based on small sizes of samples. So the chance that the sample used does not accurately represent the population from which it is drawn, this is that sampling error margin of error. So uh, in a typical 1,000-person survey, there's usually a 3.1% amount of uncertainty we can expect. So larger sample sizes uh, can yield more accurate predictions of opinions of a population, but there is a trade-off in terms of cost since it's more expensive to survey more people. Right. So even with a good sample design, surveys may fail to reflect the true distribution of opinion within a target population. One frequent source of measure measurement error is the wording of survey questions. Words used in a question can have an enormous impact on the answers the question elicits. So the reliability of survey results can also be adversely affected by poor question format, the ordering of questions, poor vocabulary, ambiguity of questions, or questions with built-in biases, right? So, for example, uh, when the word welfare is substituted for assistance for the poor, about half of all respondents indicate that too much money is being spent by the federal government. Now, today, pollsters are increasingly turning to the use of online surveys, often using similar techniques to those of the telephone surveys. Internet surveys can be more efficient, less costly, more accurate than standard phone surveys. They include much larger samples of young people and yield more accurate results within age cohorts. But many surveys you will find online don't use probability sampling or random sampling, so it's not representative of the American population. Instead, it's just, you know, reflecting those willing to take a quiz online. Now, telephone and online surveys increasingly embed experimental techniques within the design where one group of respondents is given a treatment or unique question wording and responses are compared with a control group of respondents that does not receive that treatment. So the researcher is interested in the difference in responses between the treatment and the control group. Experiments are one of the most rigorous methods for detecting causal relationships. Now, political scientists have found survey results can be inaccurate when the surveys include questions about sensitive issues for which individuals don't wish to share their true preferences. So, for example, respondents tend to overreport voting in elections and the frequency of their church attendance because these activities are deemed socially appropriate. And political scientists call this the social desirability effect. It's where respondents report what they expect the interviewer wishes to hear or whatever they think is socially acceptable rather than what they actually believe or know to be true. So given the failure of public opinion polls to predict the outcome back in the 2016 election, a lot of people question if polls systematically underreported support for Trump and his policies. And explanations for why Trump performed better at the ballot box than in the polls include that Trump did better in polls of voters, either registered or likely voters, than in polls of all adults, and he also performed better in polls conducted online or by automated script surveys with a live telephone caller. Yeah. 
So questions that ask directly about race or gender are particularly problematic. Social desirability makes it difficult to learn voters' true opinions about touchy subjects such as racial attitudes because respondents hide their preferences from the interviewer for fear of social retribution, you know, what against what might be deemed politically incorrect opinions, right? So measuring public opinion can be a challenge, you know. Measuring opinions incorrectly can bias the findings, so... So the importance of accurate sampling was brought home early in the history of political polling. So, for instance, back in 1936, Literary Digest poll predicted the Republican candidate at the time, Alf Landon, would defeat the Democratic incumbent, Franklin Roosevelt. And the actual election ended in a Roosevelt landslide. The main problem with the survey was what is called selection bias in drawing the sample. The pollsters relied on telephone direct and automobile registration rosters to produce the survey sample. During the Great Depression, though, only wealthier Americans owned telephones and automobiles. So millions of working-class Americans who constituted Roosevelt's base of support were excluded from the sample. So that's selection bias. Push polling. These are not scientific polls. They are intended to yield accurate information about a population. They involve asking a respondent a loaded question about a political candidate designed to elicit the response sought by the pollster and simultaneously to shape the respondent's perception of the candidate in question. Public opinion polls can influence political realities in elections. Uh, Sometimes polling can create its own reality. So the so-called bandwagon effect occurs when polling results convince people to support a candidate marked as the probable victor. So I hope that gives you a better understanding of public opinion, how we measure it, how polling works, and... We'll pick up next time with uh, the media. Later, guys.